Amen. Thank you, Kevin. Well, I'm Tim Rogers, lead pastor here at Grace Point Church. It's an honor to be with you this morning, and thank you for those who are in the room and those who are joining us online as well. Great to see you here virtually. Well, as I've grown up over the past uh, you know, number of years that I've been alive, I've realized something, that, that I am committed throughout all of my life, especially as a child on forward, I'm committed to getting stronger. I don't know about you, but here's what I realized, and I thought about this just the other, the other day, that whenever I'd get a new pair of shoes when I was a little kid, what do you think they would make you do when you're about five or six years old? Run a little stronger, run a little faster, jump a little higher, remember that feeling? These are great shoes. My kids love these shoes. These are really high-quality shoes right here, right? And this is what I would think. If only I would get a new pair of shoes. Maybe I could run as fast as my dad because he's a little bit stronger than me. Maybe I could jump as high as the kid in my class who can jump a little bit higher than me. When I got a little bit later on into school, into high school, began playing basketball, this is about all I could lift at the time. It was a good eight-pound weight. But I realized that if I'm going to compete on the basketball court and show those guns during my uh, you know, high school years with the tank top that I had to wear and the, the, you know, the uniform, that I needed to work out. And so I would work out. And I had an incredible weight set that consisted of about this in my basement. And I would work out because I wanted to get stronger and develop the kind of physique that I have right now. <laughs> Even later, I realized, you know, I don't think that my future is in this, so maybe I want to get book smarter, right? Maybe I want to get stronger in my mind and what I know. Maybe I need to read. Maybe I need to study because I want to get stronger there. And I think just about at every turn in my life, when I have run into something that I've considered a limitation or a weakness, my response has been, I want to get stronger. I want to get better. And maybe that is your story too. And, and I don't know among you in, in this room how many of us would say that right now in this season that we're in, in this moment that we walk through together, that you couldn't use just a little bit more strength right now. Is there anyone who would say, you know, I don't really need to be stronger right now. I have about all that I need. I have all the resources I need and I'm set as I am. See, I'm convinced that we need strength, and even during this season, and especially during the season that we're walking through right now, that we want to, want to get stronger even together. Now, here's what I think as well, that our culture has a, um, uh, a formula for teaching us how to become stronger, if you will. And our culture says about weakness, that with weakness, you just need to get these things, whatever these are for you, whether it's shoes or weights or books or business expertise or family planning or training or your own personal growth and development and all these things that can be good things. But our culture says one thing about it, but here's what I think is a message unique to Christianity. And if you call yourself a Christian this morning, this may be a message unique to you. And that is this, that ironically, that the fastest way to stronger, to stronger is this, is that weaker is actually the fastest way to stronger. That being weaker, as ironic as this statement sounds, that weaker is the fastest way to stronger. Now, what does that mean? Here's what I want to say, first of all. Our culture is going to tell you, this is far from the truth. This is far from the truth. The fastest way to stronger, when you feel weak, is to argue your point. The fastest way to stronger is when you feel that you're inadequate, train more, work out more, learn more, study more, meet more people. When you feel weak, you just need to double down on your argument. If someone doesn't like what you have to say, and you may find that there's inadequacies in your own thinking, don't ever admit it and apologize. Just double down and be mean to them. That is the way that we can get through our world and the problems that we have. That is our culture's message. 
Our culture doesn't send the message, and many of us are discipled this way, but it doesn't send the message of, wait, maybe there's something here that we need to learn. Maybe instead of being divisive, there's a way that we can move forward and actually become stronger together by finding some areas of weakness where we have room to grow, because weakness does something to us that is a gift to us, and that is part of the message of Christianity. It's also just part of the message of real life. And here's why I say that I think this is true, that weaker is the fastest way to stronger. Because this, I think, is true in your experience, that your hard times and my hard times reveal our weaknesses, don't they? It was when I was a kid and I realized I don't have the speed of my dad. I wanted to run faster. When I realized that I was getting pushed around down low in the block when I wanted to get the rebounds, I needed to get stronger. It's those hard times, as simple as those are, that reveal, hey, I'm weak there. I need to get bigger. I want to get faster. And for you, hard times reveal your own weaknesses, and they reveal mine too. But also it goes this way. For the Christian now, it turns this way, that weaknesses should be embraced. The reason that we should embrace our weaknesses and not run from them is because of this reality. Paul wrote in Corinthians, he put it this way, he said, God's power is made perfect in weakness. This is a Christian message unique for Christians, that indeed weakness is to be embraced, not rejected, because it's in our weakness that I look at my inadequacy and say, shoot, that is where God shows up. Because if all I do is cover my weakness and limitations, all you're going to see is me. The Christian's life points beyond itself to a loving Heavenly Father who sent His Son to come die for you and for me. This, my friends, is the message of what Christians call the gospel. This is, this, is, this is exactly what Christians believe. Christians believe, you know what, I am a sinner. I have failed, I have fallen, I'm weak. I need, I need a source outside of myself for help. I need God's power that's made perfect in my weakness. But you and I, in our culture, in a variety of daily ways, reject the gospel. Even if we call ourselves a Christian, I still want to save myself. I want to be stronger in your eyes, so I'm going to read more. So if you ask me questions, I'll know all the answers because I want to save myself. I will study harder so I can excel so that I don't show any weakness to you. And I will run faster. I will work out more so that you won't see the weaknesses of me and I can be my own savior. I'm a functionally rejecting the message of the gospel that says it's in our weakness and in our limitation that we find the real strength for getting through everything. And that is the strength, not of me, but the strength of God. During this series, Stronger, I want to speak to us in this moment we are in as a people. To find strength in a place where it can be found and can be reliable. Not just in our white-knuckle efforts to make our businesses better and our family stronger and our character flawless and our struggles dealt with. Not just in our efforts. It's good to work. But I want to drive us to a God who is stronger, who even though everything around it, like this little plant in this picture, like everything around it is dry and worn out and burned down and empty and lifeless, there is still hope that even in that space, there is a God who can bring life. And this morning, I want to start this journey on stronger by looking at a man who ended up leading a nation of Israel hundreds of years ago through a season of life that was incredibly, incredibly difficult for them. A moment where he had to confront, if you will, his own weakness, his own limitation, and confront the brokenness that existed in his people and even in himself. And so, so throughout this summer, we're going to be looking at this man. His name was Nehemiah. 
And he led a people through one of the worst times in the transition of the nation, of the history of Israel. And so if you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to turn to Nehemiah chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, not a problem whatsoever. There's a Bible around you and the chairs near you. That's our gift to you. You can take that Bible home with you. You can look up Nehemiah chapter 1 on your phone. If you want to have a paper Bible, you can find kind of the middle of your Bible will be the Psalms. And then just back up a little bit, a couple, couple books, and you'll find Nehemiah right there. So Nehemiah is where we're going to land as we look at this idea of a God who is stronger and is able to carry us through so many things. Now, just by way of quick background, for those who aren't familiar with the book of Nehemiah, as we open up these pages, you should just know and feel and understand the, the weight and the, of the cultural moment. The nation of Israel had been exiled. They'd been taken out of their country. They were taken by the Babylonian Empire. The Babylonians came in, took them without asking. Right? They just took their men, women, and children, enslaved them. Some were left in the nation of Israel, in Jerusalem, excuse me, and some were taken. So by this point, um, at this point when we jump into Nehemiah, there are what we call three different returns of the nation of Israel. Israel had been in captivity for a long time. Zerubbabel, that's a great baby name by the way, Ezra and now Nehemiah are leading the nation back to Jerusalem. Now Zerubbabel, he was a guy who came and he rebuilt the temple. Ezra came back and he kind of rebuilt the hearts of the people in terms of teaching them again. And then Nehemiah came in to rebuild the wall, if you think about it that way. And here's why that's important. Because for Zerubbabel, when he returned and the people kind of came back to this broken down, burned down city, those who had remained, because the Babylonians didn't take everybody, there was a few people who remained in Jerusalem. They were in abject poverty. They were in absolute abject poverty. They couldn't worship because there was no temple. And during that time, you couldn't just worship in your closet. You couldn't just pray on your own. There were regulations and um, stipulations on how to worship God, and the community worship was gone for generations. And so Zerubbabel comes back and he re rebuilds the temple and then the people begin to fall away and Ezra comes back and does some teaching and kind of stirs their heart and then Nehemiah comes in to put it all together, to build the wall, to provide safety for all these people. And so we kind of pick up this story in the middle of a social, economic, religious crisis for the nation of Israel. And in chapter one, verse one, we begin to read it this way. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. Let's pause it right there. First two verses alone. We don't know a ton about who this guy Nehemiah was, but we just know he was the son of Hakaliah. I'm not sure who he was. And we also know he had a brother named Hanani. That's about all we know in terms of his background. But here's the picture. Some people are coming before Nehemiah because he had an incredible position in government. He was a powerful man, powerful leader in this time. And they come and, and Nehemiah asks them about two things. Verse 2 says two things. I asked them, one, about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile, and secondarily, about Jerusalem. Two different things. And just as a seed of hope... I don't ever want you to forget, and many of you know this word, and some may not, and that's totally fine, this word remnant. It's this idea that God uses throughout the Old Testament that says, you know, even when things are at their worst, and the nation of Israel was pulled away from Jerusalem, even when things are at their absolute worst, I'm going to leave a little bit of hope in that space. 
Maybe like this little plant in the middle of a desert. Even when everything else seems lifeless and burned down, I'm going to leave a little bit of hope in there. This remnant is a picture of God's promises to his people that even when you think all is lost, I want you to know I haven't forgotten you. Sometimes you're going to need to look to see it. But this remnant is a powerful idea of this truth, that redemption is more powerful than tragedy. Hope is more powerful than death. And the remnant he asks about, how are the people who are making it there in Jerusalem? How are they doing? How are the people doing? And then he wants to know about Jerusalem. About when he asks that question, he's wanting to know about the, the reputation of the city. He wants to know about the, the continuation of God's promise to be the God of the nation of Israel and Jerusalem in particular in their capital, to wondering, like, is the name of God through the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Israel continuing? How is the city doing? And vicariously, then, how is the reputation going forward? Is the reputation of God carrying forward in this time or not? To which then he gets this report, and some of you know this story, verse 3, and they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. To answer your first question, Nehemiah, the people who actually made it through the trauma of the exile because many simply died or were killed, those who actually survived have the benefit of returning to a province in which they are now maybe in worse trouble than they were ever before and are in disgrace. They're a shameful people. People look at them and like, I would never want to be in that neighborhood. Look at their God. Oh my gosh, who would ever want to move there? And then, just since you asked about the city, let me tell you, Nehemiah, the end of verse 3, the wall of Jerusalem, it's broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. So if you want a picture of what's going on, it's chaos and terrible, all right? I mean, there's no safety. There's no identity. There's no clear future. The people who are there are in a lot of trouble. There's going to be health concerns. There's no financial system set up. Kids aren't going to be educated. People have no place to live. There's an inadequate food supply. I mean, if you want to know what's going on, it's a mess. It's chaotic, and there's no government that's going to come in and save it. So what else do you want to know, Nehemiah? Now, let me ask you this question. If this information were presented to a leader today, what do you think their reaction would be? What do you think the reaction would be? Don't answer this out loud. Just think of it in your head, please. That would be helpful for everybody. But I can imagine a response that would go somewhere along the lines that a leader would need to find somebody to blame for that situation. Oh, it's because of those Babylonians, those godless people, those godless people who never cared about God, they never had him as the center of their life anyway. Those were immoral people who always pursued false gods. Look what they did to our people. I can't believe it. Oh, you know what? Maybe, no, no, no. Maybe it's the fault of the previous generation. <laughs> I mean, they didn't worship God. They got themselves in this trouble. God made a covenant with them that if he was, they were faithful to him, he'd be faithful to them. Look at, it's our ancestors. It's my parents, my grandparents' generation. Man, they're the ones who blew it for us. Now, look at that. Because of them, look where we are. <laughs> Maybe it's the other party. Maybe it's the people who think that we should have led differently through that. Maybe it's the priest's fault. They didn't keep the people true to God. Maybe it's their fault. Ah, oh, it's the priestly line of Levi. It's their fault. If only they would have worshipped better. If only they would have led the people with more integrity. If only they would have, then we wouldn't be here. 
I mean, can you imagine this is the normal line of response for any leader positioned with such a difficult situation today? Because injustice rightly makes us angry and makes us want to lash out and find a problem. And it also, if I'm honest, it also confronts us with what I'm going to say is our weakness. Because as Nehemiah looks at this situation, he can't solve it. It's too big, even for Nehemiah. And so look at his response, and I want you to look at his response in light of how people in this day and age might respond to a similar crisis in verse 4. He said, when I, when I heard about these things, verse 4, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine a world in which when confronted with some of the greatest challenges and even the greatest pain that you might ever feel or experience. The people around you in leadership would say, you know what I need to do? This is breaking my heart. Instead of blaming you or the other side who believes differently, instead of blaming another generation, instead of blaming those people who didn't and those people who did, instead of blaming the enemy, <laughs> I'm turning my heart toward God right now. I need to sit down. I need to sit down. And I need, I need to cry. <laughs> Men, we know, you don't need to be told, that tears are a sign of the lack of our control, right? They're a sign of the limit of our power, and we don't love it, do we? They're a sign that you can't control the emotion that's raging through your heart right now. You're not strong enough to handle what's in front of you. Even if it's good, if you're crying at the wedding of your daughter, for example, tears of joy, ah, oh, he can't control it, can he? You don't say those words, but we feel it, don't we? That tears are a reminder of our male inferiority, that we don't have the strength for what we really feel like we need to do. And here's Nehemiah, an incredible leader who later on will take up arms, a fighter, a warrior, a political, religious leader, whose response is to weep and to embrace that moment of limitations. This is beyond me. And then we read there, for some days, this goes on. For days, this goes on. What we read about is an ancient tradition of mourning. This is how people handle death during the nation of Israel's time period. This is a picture of what people do when loved ones die. They mourn for days. And so what we're reading in Nehemiah is he's recognizing a death right now. And this is so important. He's recognizing that the dream of the nation of Israel might be dead. He's recognizing that the hopes of a future for this place might be gone. He's grieving in his own heart the death of his dream of his ancestors, what they went through and what they processed and the death of expectations and hopes. And I don't know if you can relate to that this year. I don't know if you can relate to that in the past couple years. I don't know if you've walked through the death of expectations. If you've walked through the death of loved ones, if you've walked through the death of hope, if you've wished people would have done something and they did the opposite something, and you've had a death of relationships, and you've had a death within your own close-knit circle, 
of wishing things were one way and now they are the other. What Nehemiah is doing is saying, listen, if you want to heal and move forward, the best thing to do is to call death what it is rather than to run from it. It's a death. And it's going to require some healing. And it's going to require that I face it and I see it for what it is. There's a sadness, right? There's an anger, too. I remember when my friend and many of your friends, Leon Byler, passed away just a few, boy, weeks ago, months ago even, maybe. Leon was a loved, beloved young man of our church. Uh, he was our treasurer for 150 years. He never missed church. He told me one time, he told me one time that he was going to miss church on a Sunday. I said, Leon, I need to tell you, there's nobody who tells me when they're going to miss church. They just don't come. He's like, listen, Tim, I've not missed church for like 35 years. I'm like, Leon, man, I'm not even 35 years old, right? Now, his faithfulness was strong and his care and love was strong. And so when Leon passed away, right, like especially during COVID, what did I feel? I felt anger. Like, I felt like this is an injustice. Like, I wish this wouldn't. Why did this have to happen? Right? I mean, you feel that with death, right? When people you love pass, it's like, no. Like, this isn't the way it was designed to be. And there's something good and godly about that, right? But I also have to recognize that I get angry when you pull out in front of me on Route 30. And then go 23 miles an hour. <laughs> and that's not good and godly. That's just anger. And here's the unique thing. Like James tells me then, he writes, he says, listen, it's almost like he's writing it to me. He's like, Tim, he puts it in his little letter that he wrote in the New Testament. He says, the anger of man does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. I hate that he wrote that. The anger of man does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. So if you want to get angry, like you can, just know it doesn't lead. The anger of man doesn't lead to righteousness that God wants from you. And so Nehemiah, when he could have been angry that other people should have done something to prevent Jerusalem from being here, other people should have protected these relationships. I wish other people would have acted differently. I wish, I wish, I wish. Instead of blaming and getting angry at the injustice that is right in front of him, he steps in to that space, recognizing the weakness that is there, and says, I need to sit down before the feet of a loving Heavenly Father and weep and call this what it is. This is a death, and it hurts me. And so for days, he comes before God and asks for his favor and his mercy. And so if I can ask you a question, here's one question I want to ask. It's this. What do you do with the weakness the pain reveals in your life? What do you do? with the weakness that pain reveals in your life. You see, the pain for Nehemiah was clear. And the weakness that he had was clear. If he could have solved it, he wouldn't have sat down and cried. He wouldn't have gone before God in heaven. He would have just been like, here's the plan. I'm going to go. We're going to get some timber. We're going to get some stone. We're going to build it fine. Hey, I'll be back in a couple months. Let's make it happen. His immediate reaction is to step in and see his weakness and limitation, and the tears flow the pain is deep. And I would ask you, church, what do you do with the weakness the pain reveals in your life? Because our culture will disciple you 
to say this. What you should do, here's what you should do with a weakness that pain reveals in your life. When you're beat up down low and you're playing basketball in the, box, in the, in the paint, low post, here's what you should do with the pain that you feel and the weakness you feel. Come on, baby, work it out. Get a little bit stronger. This is, I can't do this too much. It's hurting me. Eight pounds is going to kill me. Hey, here's what you need to do. You need to run faster, man. You got some weakness. You're not as strong. You're not as fit as somebody else. You don't look as good as somebody else. You're not as smart. Here, let me tell you what to do if you're not smart enough. You got some, some, uh, some weakness. Pain is revealed. You didn't get the job someone else did. Oh, you don't have a degree, do you? Oh, well, listen, go get a degree, man. Read, study, be stronger. Come on, that's all you got to do. Be stronger. Right? When pain comes into your life, you don't get what you want. Be stronger. Be stronger. Cover it, man. In other words, just be your own savior. You're the gospel to you. You don't need anything else. I mean, you're the gospel to you. To which Nehemiah, as well as even Jesus, when he was in the garden before he was about to die, cries out and prays to the Father when weakness is confronting him. When, the, when weakness comes and it is painful, when the pain comes and we see the weakness that we have, Jesus, Nehemiah, Break down in tears and exhaustion, if you will, and say, God, I'm at the end. I need you. I need you. And so I ask you, what do you do with the weakness that pain reveals in your life? Do you double down? Do you get angry? Do you fight? Do you cover? Or do you do something else? See, here's what Nehemiah did, and here's some things I learned from Nehemiah. He did this. First of all, he didn't run from it. These are four things for me that I would like to encourage you. Nehemiah didn't run from it. I'd encourage you not to either. As uncomfortable as it is, he didn't run. He didn't hide. He didn't go away from it. He said, you know, I'm going to look at this thing straight up as it is. I'm not going to run. Here's a moment. I don't like where I'm at. I don't like where things are at. I'm not going to run from this pain. Secondly, he named it. He called it what it is. Like, I'm angry right now because of this. I'm disappointed because of this. I feel the weakness because of this. I can't handle it because of this. He named it. I mean, this is what he did. Went to his father in prayer. Thirdly, let me encourage you this. Instead of turning against others, turn toward God. Instead of blaming it on someone else and saying, if only someone would have, then this wouldn't have happened. If, then this could have happened sooner and this could have happened later and something else could have been different and why does it have to be and blah, 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 blah. I get that. But instead of turning against others, Nehemiah turned toward God. And here's what that looks like for me. Let me draw that down from a philosophical idea. What this looks like for me, there are sometimes this means for me, it's going to mean time, and I'll often spend time early in the morning in my own study that I have in the basement. I'll often spend time in my own time just in reading and prayer together with God. That to me is one thing, right? And I kind of grew up with that being the primary way to connect to God, and there's nothing wrong with that. I find some great life in that. At the same time, I also recognize that I find a connection with God in taking some of this pain and hurt that I feel about injustice. Sometimes when I am on the bike alone, I can talk to God and connect with him and listen in a way that I can't when I'm sitting in my office reading. It just isn't different, different. Sometimes exercise for you is that story. Sometimes for you and sometimes for me, it's also coffee, even though I drink, drink, don't drink coffee, I'll get a coffee cup, put water in it, we'll drink quote-unquote coffee together. And it's talking to a friend, which leads to this last point, and that is share with and learn from others. This is what Nehemiah did. Share with. Tell the story and learn from others. See, there's a variety of ways, at least for me in my own life, 
that I need to turn toward God and that I find life in turning toward God that aren't limited just to, well, let me make sure that I pray and read more and journal more, which I do all those things in different ways. But I also find life in connecting with God in ways that aren't as traditional, that are a way for me to get out some of this angst sometimes that I feel and sometimes that you feel, because pain has confronted me and I know it's confronted you this year. There have been multiple times this year where people that I love have had a hard go of it for one reason or another. There have been multiple times this past year, and some of you know these stories more than others, where I have physically had to sit down upon receiving news of hard stuff in my life. That is rare. Those news moments are rare, and it's a good thing they are, right? Because those are heavy times. And what that pain reveals is a weakness. It reveals a weakness that I can't cover it. I don't have enough. That, for the Christian, is a gift because it reminds the Christian of the gospel that we were never enough. We can never lift enough weights and run fast enough and read enough books to save ourselves from the pain of the life that we live. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we never needed to be good in the first place. But God, through his kindness, has come to you and to me and in our weakness, he is made strong. And so let me encourage you, in your weakness, in the pain that you feel, and the weakness that you are staring at, the struggle in your family, the personal doubt you have about your own security and confidence, the uncertainty about how to move forward, the financial strain you're under, let me encourage you to turn toward God and maybe like Nehemiah, sit with him. Ride your bike with him. Take a walk with him. Listen to music with him. Be with him instead of blaming others. And find yourself again renewed in the presence of a God who has come to save you because it's in our weakness that God's power is made perfect. You want to be stronger? I want to be stronger too. There's a God who can lead us there. And next week, we're going to continue in this story with Nehemiah, looking forward to meeting a stronger God through prayer next week. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to be together this morning and pause for a minute to look at Nehemiah's response to a very difficult time in his life and his nation's life. And I pray for us this morning that we would heed these lessons, we would look at it and be renewed by this message that we cannot save ourselves, that in this culture that wants to disciple and shape us to be stronger, never to apologize, not to admit our weakness and our flaws, to cover, to put makeup on, to get muscle put on, to get intellect put on, to, to look, to act, to function in a way that doesn't reveal our own weakness. Father, I pray that you would help us to see that weaker is the fastest way to stronger because it drives us to you. And it's only in your strength that we find the ability to carry on. So I pray that you would break in us the pride that wants to protect our images, the pride that keeps us from apologizing, the pride that keeps us from learning from each other, 
the pride that keeps us from being able to unite around bigger picture matters. And like Nehemiah, I pray that you would break our heart and bring us before you to name it, to see it, to own our weakness so that we can see your power is stronger than we would ever be. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.